0: Well, welcome everyone. I'm Chris Monchinsky. This is Analytics Matter, an NES international podcast. Uh, We've been doing this somewhat regularly, trying to be a little more regular about it, uh, brought to you by the Analytics Working Group at Mesa. Today we have our topic and question that we want to discuss, uh, specifically around security and cybersecurity related to data and analytics, if you think about it, the whole idea of getting access to more and more data uh, involves more connected, more open systems, uh, pulling data together from far reaches of the organization down to the sensor level and the machine level in manufacturing all the way through the supply chain. That kind of connected system and set of systems uh, requires an awful lot of interaction and data transfer um, in order to get access to the data we need and, and put it, and massage it, transform it into the, uh, the views that we need ultimately to drive analytics. Um, and yet that is in somewhat tension uh, with the need for security. The more we connect, the more vulnerable we become, The more we require security and cybersecurity and really good governance on access to these systems. In fact, if you think about it, it's one thing to secure your email or to secure your documents um, with various types of security. But now that we're connecting to machines, there is the possibility that you can transcend from the cyber physical to the physical. That is, you can have a security breach that does real damage. To real things in the real world um, and become a highly unsafe um, or even life-threatening situation. Um, So security has probably never been more important. And these two things, the ability to get access to data and openness of systems and security could be intention. Um, What we like to talk to everyone today about is, um, and those assembled here, is the idea of a zero trust environment. Zero trust is a security approach Uh, that basically assumes that nothing, no interaction is to be trusted without some level of authentication. And there's far more to it than even that because zero trust is a a mindset that involves not just implementing security, but regular auditing of security and an assessment of posture on a regular basis. So there's an awful lot of ongoing governance that comes into play with a zero trust mindset. Um, Is zero Trust, which is possibly one of the most stringent and, and, and um, most effective um, cybersecurity approaches, uh, completely incompatible with analytics and, and data access, or is it something we just need to learn to live with a lot better? Um, joining us today, of course, is John Jackie, uh, who is a longtime member of the Working Group, and Steve Hewitt, who is also with us today. Um, in order to give us some perspective on the security side of things, we've brought in Stephen Jackie. Stephen is a uh, graduate of Purdue University in cybersecurity, um, and he's been working of late uh, with the Ford Motor Company doing uh, automotive in vehicle regression testing. So I'm thinking to some extent this involves a real uh, interesting IoT type scenario where you're actually interested in the interaction between the vehicle, its electronics, and possibly its connection to external systems for telemetry, the cloud, maybe even commands. Um, so again, high stakes, the need to gain access to data, and, and also the potential for uh, some real safety concerns, uh, which will require some important security um, uh, implications and, and, um, and uh, assessment. Stephen, can you give us a little more background on on what you've been doing of late and and how that ties into implementing cybersecurity in this new space?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So as of late, I spent the last year, year and a half or so um, developing cybersecurity tools for Ford Motor Company, uh, specifically so that they can test the vulnerabilities on the software in the vehicles. Um, This allows people to submit applications like phone apps um, that go along with the vehicle, which I'm sure many of you have seen to some extent with your current vehicles, um, and determine whether the open source components have vulnerabilities in them. Um, I've also done some work in security operations, uh, which is pretty pretty benign, pretty bland. Uh, It's just a lot of Making sure emails and the security behind them are running correctly um, and the occasional handling of malware um, and then I did a good amount spent a good amount of time doing regression testing for the phone as a key feature in the uh, Lincoln navigator um, that was the 2022 or 2020 model excuse me
0: excellent excellent John I gotta, I guess I'll go to you first um just thinking a little bit about the idea of zero trust, you know, a, a pretty restrictive security approach. Um, and then some of the things in, in, in light of what Steven's talking about his use case of actually having a, an, an automobile that is really connected through a phone connection. Um, what kind of what, what kind of concerns do you have, I guess, around, you know, that kind of connectivity and the data that needs to be extracted from those systems? Well,
2: well, let me first of all start by going back to uh, something that happened to, uh, and I'm, I'm not talking about a specific vehicle or, or a specific device. I'm talking about a plant. Um, and this was a security issue that occurred, and it wasn't even malicious. It was purely accidental. And we had a very, very dedicated uh, a maintenance manager in a plant that I was uh, working with who basically liked to be tied at the hip. To absolutely everything in the facility uh, he was very clever when we put in some networking here that he gave himself uh, a network access to uh, the system so once a system had an issue they were uh, one of the folks inside the plant uh, was talking to him and he happened to be at home uh, he said oh I see where the issue is and I and he dialed into the uh, and, and he dialed into the network and put the system while it was running into program mode. I don't know if you know what happens, but everything kind of comes to an abrupt e-stop within the entire system all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not a pretty down. Uh, it was not a pretty downage, and there was a lot of lost material, et cetera, et cetera. Especially when you're making it, you know, product, you know, hundreds to thousands per minute, because this was a uh, a CPG application. Needless to say, uh, one of the first things that we did was, as a function of zero trust, we took out the ability to dial in uh, to the system, and you can do, or, or in some cases, we took out the You can't do any online anything. You can't change certain states of the system to avoid exactly that scenario. So, and that was years ago and that was before we had Bluetooth and before we had some of the access that we do today. Um, There are a lot of ways that we can create side doors into systems and I'm sure sure Stephen or Steve can uh, both talk to, to that, but that's just one personal example of how it basically caused a probably on the uh, on the tune of almost a three to four hour downtime on one of many lines that was in a plant um, hey john
0: john, I, I guess that that's a it's an interesting point because we do a lot of and over the years, there's always been a lot of need for remote access to systems for external vendors, equipment vendor, et cetera um and those those access not only could they could they uh, or, or or would the request be for the ability to change a parameter, let's say, but also to actually do some sort of programming or, or download you know change of the um, of the application itself. Now I guess in the case of Stevens scenario, it's a little bit different, right because um, and, and even within the analytics realm, we could take commands off the table and we could say, that, well, we're not going to allow anyone to command anything because we're an analytics group. We want to get data out of systems. Um, So that's a little more passive. It's a little bit more, a little less um, dangerous, uh, per se. But there is, to your point, Stephen, um, a need, uh, like, for example, to download new firmware sets, right, to remotely download a firmware set and update a system remotely. You know, what kind of implications
1: or problems could
0: that cause?
1: Well, Yeah. So that's an interesting point. And I'm going to start with uh, unpacking that with just the application of the data. Um, I think having access to that data is very dangerous. Um, And it's not much different than having access to the ability to do a remote code execution, which is the kind of issue that John was talking about. Um, For example, if someone were to have access to the vulnerability data in the uh, prototype applications that people were scanning, they very easily can use that information to gain remote access with maybe one extra step of just having to look up this data, right? Um, So I think that that alone is something that needs to to be looked at, um, especially when thinking about that kind of zero trust mentality where you... Don't even want to trust users to see data that they're not supposed to see. Okay. Um, and then remind me, what else would you like to know about that? Because I think there's there's a lot of conversation points in that statement you just made.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, sure. I mean, I think you you you've kind of really buttoned it up. for I was talking a little bit about, let's say, download still being able to download, let's say. Uh, information such as a new firmware update to a, a remote sure. device, whether it's in your case, automobile, actually, or if it's right. um, a sensor on the plant floor, right? So either scenario, you might want to download some firmware update. That firmware update right. could be compromised, right? Um, it could mm-hmm. be intercepted and, and reverse engineered. Uh, but you brought up a, a, an interesting point. And I think that you really hit the hit on the head where I wanted to go with this, is that even in an environment where, it's a read-only environment. Even in something that mm-hmm. seems as innocuous as analytics, we just want to we just want to have your data. We just want to pull that data up, aggregate it, structure it, put it in our data lake, and only ultimately, ultimately apply analytics on top of it. Even in those environments, zero trust and the idea of, of basically ensuring that people are authenticated when they get to see data, that data is segregated appropriately, is a good practice to have. Because yes. You haven't you, if you haven't done that assessment yet if you haven't done um, the due diligence to be disciplined enough to understand what data you're giving access to how do you know that you aren't giving access to data that could ultimately be turned around and used in nefarious ways so so it's an interesting point that even in even in what is potentially deemed a, a more safe environment um, zero trust concepts are, are a pretty important thing to uh, to bring to light
1: yeah absolutely Steve are you with us still?
3: Yeah, I'm still with you. Yeah, I, I was wondering um, if um, if by uh, using the zero trust approach might actually open the doors to more analytics. In that, if people can be um, free of worry that they're going to, you know, uh, touch a system that's that then going to misbehave, uh, but if they're free of that worry, then then people that want to do analytics or want to have that done. Um, would they, do you think, what does the group think? Uh, would they be freer to act and and create more analytics without any of this uh, this fear surrounding it?
1: Yeah, that's actually a really interesting idea. I can speak on that a little bit. Um, I think yes, yes, that's uh, a very accurate assessment because one of the mentalities of the cybersecurity professional, um, is to not only protect against the malicious malicious actors, but also the person who just didn't know that typing drop table deletes every single thing on your entire computer, right? Um, or in your, your entire database, excuse me. Um, so somewhat protecting against stupidity and having that zero trust um, mentality more so than the actual technical aspects um, ensures that users don't do things that could seriously damage the, the system unintentionally. Um, so a lot of the concern is like these insider threats that aren't necessarily malicious actors. They're just not acting uh, as a user is expected to act.
0: I think that's, that's, that's very true. And, and Steve, I agree with you that, you know, if you break it down to the idea of, of, of from your data perspective, confidentiality, um, integrity and availability you know so you have essentially you know that that the appropriate people have access you have that you have confidentiality built in and people have confidence in that the integrity of the data is transferred and transformed uh, as expected it's complete. Mm-hmm. It's unaltered again you have confidence in that and then you have availability of the data in the system is meeting the user demand and expectations you meet those those bars, those three criteria, and you build trust, essentially, between your end yes. users, the uh, the consumers of the data, and the generators of the data, too, that, yes. hey, you know, I, I want to I want access to your data, you know, uh, person A to person B. Person B can say, yes, in this environment, I trust that I can give that access to you uh, because I trust that how you're going to build you know, who has access to the data, uh, the level of access uh, they're going to have to the data, et cetera. So uh, very good point, Steve, actually. And and, and we kind of think of security to some extent as being something we need to um, layer on or an additional hurdle we need to, um, Ah, uh, to achieve in order to uh, to build these systems, um, but it also may be an impediment uh, if we don't uh, have that level of integrity and uh, and level of trust uh, in our systems uh, for people right. to want to interact. And, and right.
2: I thought it was interesting the way you pointed out the fact that sometimes some of these issues um, that 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 Steve brought up is the fact that uh, it's basically almost sheer stupidity or, or just a random act of uh, sequences that all of a sudden create an issue. Right. Like mm-hmm. you said, I described one situation from years ago, and and you just nailed another.
0: Right. Excellent. Excellent. And you had also brought up the point, uh, you know, Stephen, that um, you know basically um, there that you have to kind of have a, a mindset that you're going to protect yourself from all these different bad actors. Um, whether they be intentional or, or unintentional, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and more, uh, just really not understanding, uh, what they're doing and having, but there's, there's a mindset in zero trust again, that, uh, basically says, well, if, if nobody is trusted and everybody has to authenticate and everybody has to be given a minimal level of security and that has to be governed properly, um, then, then the, then the end result is that we have a system that is, is far more robust for both uh, in, against intentional and unintentional uh, uh, damage to the system.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned something a little bit back that I'd like to touch on, uh, Chris. Okay. You mentioned something about something along the lines of integrating security um, as a, kind of an afterthought. And a lot of the, the people in the cybersecurity community, myself included, think it's an absolutely... Vital that now that we're starting to move things onto the internet, some things that really should never be on the internet, internet in the first place, we need to start thinking of a security as an integrated step mm. in in the creation pipeline of pretty much everything we're developing, whether that's manufacturing or software. Um, security needs to be at the front. Um, you're thinking as you're developing. You're thinking about, okay, how do we make this secure? How do we protect ourselves from both malicious and um, unintentional bad actors? Um, and I think that's it's a very important shift in mindset that we're starting to see, but it's still not implemented everywhere.
0: Well, definitely. So there's, I mean, there's there's two things I could think of right at the device level, and again, just using a, a simple device. Um, you may want to um, implement, implement obviously encryption uh, mm-hmm. for your data, which is often not not the case in a lot of the um, the industrial protocols. They're not necessarily encrypted. They may have checksums and things of that nature in order to ensure the message um, was received and transmitted properly. But that's different from encryption. Sure. Um, then, at, at I know that a lot of Again, IT-level systems, when you implement zero trust, you might implement some of the multi-factor authentication. We've both experienced this now where our Mm -hmm. phone will call us up, and it's a second device that we have to authenticate against. Well, again, in these devices that are behind the scenes or business-to-business transactions, we can't necessarily have MFA in that form. We have to have something like token-based security, so some element of sharing of, of either an encryption or a token uh, between these systems so that they know one another to some extent. Um, and then beyond that, um, there's even the element of, of auditing and compliance. So these devices, again, these embedded devices, these smart devices, in a way they they be something as simple as a valve or a, an I/O link or something like that have to be able to record their acts. Uh, th- those who have accessed the system, how they access mm-hmm. the system, what data was changed. There need to be more complete audit capabilities within these devices, and that is usually pretty lacking. I mean, there's constraints on storage availability, et cetera. Um, right. But but obviously those things need to be thought of as well because I need to be able to audit and and do that governance again in order to you know um, continually uh, check that the, uh, the, the Zero Trust environment I've created is actually being adhered to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I think you're talking about is non-repudiation. Okay. Um, that is uh, pretty much the ability to be able to say that someone who logged in the system is that person and they logged in at that time. Yep. Um, and having that confidence that there's, there's no mistake there. Um, yeah, and that that is that is something that is absolutely vital, especially with IoT devices, um, because as you mentioned, the storage capacity on many of those is so low that they're not saving that information. So you have to find a way to integrate that somehow, um, whether that's through uh, a firewall of some sort or a, a packet filter that's that's checking everything that's coming through or uh, through some type of router, I don't, I don't know, some other external device outside of just that. Uh,
0: well, that's that a device. that's an interesting point you brought up now. That um, you know, it's we talk about the device specific security and the responsibility of individuals that are building out devices that are plugged into this Internet of Things, um, but the reality is we also need to think about architecture. Now. It's, it's kind of an interesting discussion because there is an industrial uh, security standard, set of standards out there, from the uh, International Society of Automation. It's called the ISA 99 standard. Uh, it's published in international form as the IEC 62443 series of standards, and um, and that standard proposes, among other things, well, it proposes good security hygiene and assessments and and other good practices, but it proposes a concept in architecture based on the Purdue model, which is is also very well uh, known and common within the um, industrial cybersecurity space uh, (laughs) around the idea of zones and conduits. And I would think that 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 concept of of cordoning off and and kind of um, breaking down your network into smaller and smaller modules, and and requiring, let's say, firewall connection or virtual network connections across different bridges or conduits, uh, and then monitoring those is another way to to and you know doing that to a much greater degree is another way to really secure networks uh, and ensure that uh, only only trusted actors essentially are are moving through a system at the appropriate uh, locations, et cetera.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um... You mentioned the purdue model i studied that rigorously that's kind of the bread and butter at purdue university yeah um, for a good reason yep there <laughs> um, you go <laughs> uh yeah segmenting your network is one of the the easiest ways to at least start getting that architecture um more secure but it, it is just a start you need to have a whole lot of things in place um and just honestly hiring a uh, a cybersecurity professional to just kind of help you get through that is, is always a great idea.
2: Now, now Steven, Sorry. you, you, you was mentioned when, uh, when we were chatting uh, a few days ago that uh, you kind of looked at yourself as being a very small part of a cybersecurity team. And can you mm. kind of describe the, the depth and breadth of uh, of, of the, the, the cyber work that you've done and what other teams are surrounding different devices, yeah. different systems, et cetera.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, cybersecurity is a massive field uh, that, and that alone is an understatement. Um, I have worked in, as I mentioned in the intro, um, in the cyber engineering side of things, which I'm developing tools. Um, and I've worked in some of the the regression pen testing-ish side of things where I'm uh, acting as if I was a bad actor um, and seeing what happens in that scenario. Um, the regression testing was more with the intention of replicating previous bad actors' uh, attempts um, and making sure that they weren't successful in uh, modern versions of the application. Um, But that being said, I was working regression testing for one feature on the vehicle. Um, There were teams that were doing the same thing for every single feature. And every single team had a different regression tester working on a different feature. Um, And a lot of these people I did not interact with. Um, To just give you an idea of the scale in one company, and that's not including the people who are working in security for cloud, um, making sure that all of Ford's cloud systems are secure, or the people who are working uh, manufacturing security, making sure that no one can break into those uh, those facilities and start messing with the the manufacturing plants, like the stamp plants, for example. Um, and that's not even including the the people who are managing the physical security, making sure that. The data centers are difficult to get into physically, so you can't walk up there and plug in a USB drive and start stealing data. Um, so just to give you an understanding of just how how vast cybersecurity as a field is.
0: Wow. And it, so it gives you it pause would... to think that manufacturers don't typically have, at least at the OT level yet, that level of of scrutiny. But they need to absolutely, especially they need as they to. start absolutely. opening up data.
1: Right, especially, especially, yeah, to just highlight that as you start implementing uh, data communication efforts.
2: Okay. Um, Steve Hewitt, you look like you had something to add to that.
1: Yeah, I was just going to ask. Um, given the,
3: the the massive range of um, skills that can be brought to bear on us on the security uh, challenge for analytics, just mm-hmm. wondering um, if the style of um, purpose of the analytic might guide the level of um, security uh, that, that you need to apply. So, for instance, um, uh, the example given at the beginning, I think, you know, machines that are being driven by machine learning outputs that could um, have a safety implication. They could kill people um, or mm-hmm. they can just make bad products. And um, that's one category. The other is, People making uh, significant business decisions on the basis of the analytics produced—not just the raw data, but the um, analytics—that these, you know, some of these might merit um, zero trust. Some of them might just merit a very well-crafted top-down security design to to support all these things. Just wondering, how does that? How does that get done? How do you make it right-sized? the problem.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not really sure how to answer that. Um if we're being 100% honest here. Um I think to start zero trust um could be used in every context, right? It's just ensuring that mm. every connection um is is a trusted connection. Um, whether that's a login from a device or whether that's creating an account um as far as setting up systems to make sure you're doing kind of the right thing and that's something that you would have to work with your specific organization um, mm-hmm. and sit down and have a discussion on what what absolutely needs to be communicated um, and at what rate um and how we are going to ensure that that uh, information is secure in a database when it's sitting on a computer somewhere, and it's secure yeah. when it's being communicated across the internet, um, and it's secure in whoever you communicated to, as well. And their uh, their security, assuming it's might be something like a, an external vendor, um, is is secure um, and trusted.
3: And and so so if you adopt zero trust, it's not necessarily going to solve all of the
1: subtle things that you need to solve. Yeah. No, zero trust is definitely just a start. Um, okay, yeah, it it won't just fix all of your security problems in a night, you mm-hmm. know. Well, I
0: John, I was going to ask um, and and Stephen, I was going to ask um, Steve's question another way, just to mm-hmm. just to make it a little bit broader. How can you gauge? I, I you're implementing a a cyber um governance policy. At, at the OT layer, how do you gauge or measure success? How do you know that yeah. that that that's that that implementation? Uh, uh, you know, regardless of whether you you you're using a zero trust policy or if you're using a blend of policies, uh, to to Steve's point, you have different types of systems. Is it the vice president of the supply chain trying to access a dashboard of analytics mm-hmm. that have already been created? You know, there's, there's there's issues of data integrity, which are both security and and data data cleansing itself which which have to do with whether the data is timely and, and has the right integrity. But how do you judge success? I guess.
1: Yeah. John, do you have a, an idea on that? Cause that's a great question that I don't have a quick answer for. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the, 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 the other thing is, well, actually that's not the question that I have, but that's a great question. Um, and I, I guess one of the things is no hacks, but as soon as you have yeah. a hack, you know that you've got a vulnerability right um so do you you know how do you set yourself up so that if you do have a vulnerability it still doesn't take you out i mean we saw mm-hmm. what it did to uh, uh what was it the gas company and i think uh you know we we had you have heard of the target um there've been healthcare uh hacked there've been uh there was wasn't there a, if i'm not mistaken wasn't there a, a another hack of one of the major grocery chains
1: i believe so but i, I wouldn't be able to tell you.
2: And I mean, you know, the, these are bad actors. And then one of the other questions, so, so I'm not exactly sure how you look at that unless you constantly monitor how many people are, how many hacks you've actually avoided sure. and how close some of them get. But I mean, that's really kind of diving deep into code and deep into analytics on, on, on just, you know, your firewalls and things like that. I, I I don't know if you have a better answer to that, Steve or Stephen.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah. I think it's interesting because you obviously don't want to um, be judging your or gauging your success on how many vulnerabilities that other people found in your system, right? Right. <laughs> um. You want to ideally be a little more proactive than than that. Um. I think doing regular security and risk audits might help. Um, having uh, external uh, red team people uh, who are who are active hackers that will hack your system um, safely and securely in a way that doesn't destroy your system, um, and then report all of the their findings to you. Um, doing some sort of regular testing in that to determine that. Uh, your kind of landscape and how many vulnerabilities that you're currently have in your system um, might help in a in a proactive sense but it it's a difficult thing to gauge um, I think your your best bet is to just have regular risk audits uh, and and reassess your risk constantly and see if that is honestly and being honest with your yourself and your company. Um, are your efforts reducing your risk? Well, it definitely, definitely ties back to Steve's question in one way, and that
0: Steve was asking, I believe, um, that you know, based on the, the the level of data, the the severity of of the potential breach, so maybe a little bit of a failure uh, effect analysis, uh, a couple of different approaches would help you to determine or provide a score for uh, what kind of vulnerabilities you would expect. Uh, you got to start with a, some level of of, of base design. Uh, then you implement your security policies and procedures, uh, your approach to security, your network architecture, etc. Mm-hmm. And then you're right. I mean, it, you know, one of the tenets of zero trust uh, that that struck me in in my reading on the topic was the the amount of governance and ongoing monitoring uh, yeah. that that is really important. That, that you don't get away from that uh, no matter what kind of security you're implementing. Uh, right. You can never dust this off and walk away. Um, you have to constantly be proactive.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you were touching on—we we keep getting so close to talking about it, but not. So I'm just gonna move over into that. Um, there are like risk, uh, kind of uh, risk assessments in place for cybersecurity. Um, a framework, I think, is the, the word I was looking for. Excellent. Where you have, um, for example, there's the CVSS scores, which are for known vulnerabilities um, that each have a rating from 1 to 10 on how functionally dangerous they are, where 10 is um, the holy crap, oh no, we need to fix this like now, all hands on deck. And one is, I mean, let's get to it because we want to fix it, but it's not a high priority usually. Um, And then you have an impact score on top of that, that will tell um, you'll have a, a risk assessment to determine whether the asset in question is a high risk asset or a low risk asset. Um, something like personal uh, or pr- private information or PII um, would be a high risk asset. Something like uh, some blocked text on your website that's under a hidden tag that you don't really care if someone sees it or not is probably a low risk asset. Okay. Um, and then you combine the combination of your, uh, the likelihood of the event happening to the, the danger of the event, if it were to happen, to get kind of an idea of uh, your total risk for that specific event um, and the importance to, to kind of fix it. Um, and then the CVSS kind of has done that work for you uh, for that specific vulnerability but you also have risks that don't have specific technical vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are, use that framework to kind of help you get there.
0: Excellent. Yeah. That's, that's really what I was after too. Absolutely is understanding from my engineering side of the house, the failure uh, mode effects analysis approach of looking at from a safety perspective, how, uh, what, what, what are the dangers? What are the vulnerabilities of a, of a system. And then ultimately you're driving towards how do we safety instrument and how do we operate the process? It's different from security, but, but certainly secu- it's, it's the same, same kind of discipline can be applied. So that's
1: excellent. Right. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. yeah. It, it starts, it starts getting you to think about uh, changes in the way you create everything from a, a user interface to, uh, to the way you assemble the an architect system as well. So, I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. I think this is really unpacking a lot for us to think about too.
0: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely.
3: Steve, do um, you have anything to add to add to that? Steve Hewitt. Um i I was it just struck me that um <laughs> so this is this is uh all about analytics uh, and security. And mm-hmm. uh my my gut instinct is oh. that the majority of industry oh. um are not really there yet with analytics. They sort of they sort of realize they may need it. Uh, they don't quite know how to do it. they're not sure of the status of their data and their information sources
1: um, right.
3: and and if we want them to go there, we want them to to try and squeeze some value out of using analytics where maybe they don't right now um, a lot of people are going to say, and you want me to jump through this hoop as well <laughs> so what 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 could we say about that How do we persuade them that uh, it, okay, uh, that it's necessary um, and that the, the dangers are greater than uh, the, the value that you're trying to, to bring by doing the analytics? Uh, or do you let them experiment? I, it, it feels like a, danger, <laughs> a dangerous playground.
2: I think you simply need to ask the question, what is a, uh, what is a minute of downtime costing you uh, if you're running at full speed and all of a sudden you get turned off?
0: Yeah, I mm-hmm. guess, you know, J- John, you're you're right in that it comes back to, you know, I always like to say fundamentals still apply. It comes back to understanding that, you know, if we're going to do an analytics project, then there should be a return on investment. And we should be able to measure that we should be able to look at how the organization is going to transform it's digital transformation. Uh, What audiences, user groups are going to be affected within the organization? How are they going to capitalize on the data and information? And then more importantly, you know, we know it's data. So, uh, I mean, it's, you know, intuitively, there's a strategic um, uh, advantage. We want to secure that data. Uh, We also need to make sure that as we expose that data, we secure all the systems that are providing that data. Um, And again, you can look at, okay, Uh, I provide you this analytic. It provides this return on investment. But if you don't secure these analytics, uh, then you open up the possibility for this kind of cost. So there is definitely a balancing act and different levels of cost and pain uh, that can be associated with this. And I think that everybody has to be upfront about what that looks like so that um, they understand you're exactly right. They they do need to invest. There has to be some investment in infrastructure in order to gain access to uh, the data that we want to uh, to capitalize on. Um, we would be foolish not to make those investments and then leave ourselves vulnerable in different ways. Uh, they could wipe right. out that in, that uh, that uh, return on investment that we're anticipating.
2: But 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 to extend on that a little bit, I mean, if you look at some of the, gonna uh, go down? To different path if you look at some of the baby boomer uh, folks out there that are running equipment well i've been running this equipment for the last 35 years and we've never had a vulnerability anywhere why am i going to invest in anything right well that's because it was
0: never connected to anything either which is true a lot of equipment
2: right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> right um we're about at time um so i wanted to, to uh to say thank you first of all to uh Stephen for joining us. It's, it's been incredibly insightful. No, I don't think anyone here, I don't think anyone here would claim, and certainly no one that I know of in our working group would claim to be a, a, really a cybersecurity expert, and yet this is a, an incredibly important topic when uh, thinking about analytics and data access and the connectivity uh, that we're all preaching uh, we want to uh, to achieve. Um, one of the things I would ask, I guess, is, you know, again, going back to, to a little bit at the beginning, the, the lack of maturity at the OT level um, you know, if you had mentioned a lot about uh, Stephen talking about the different team and, and what makes up a team for of cybersecurity experts to do this kind of an ongoing assessment, you know, what would you look for uh, as far as a skill set for someone in the cyber arena, specifically related to the OT technologies that are out there, the kind of communication protocols, the security challenges that that someone faces at the OT layer?
1: Yeah, um, forgive me, I'm not familiar with the OT. Uh, acronym can you oh i'm the...
0: sorry so so operational technology being i like to think of it as the application of it type technologies at the manufacturing okay. or operations layer so not yeah. not in the back office not in the business systems yeah. but on yeah, the IAP factory IAP floor for lack of a better way to
1: put it Connecting... yeah, that's a... mm-hmm. yeah that's a that's a hard question for me to to answer honestly okay um i find that people with some basic hacking skills um, is kind of a must you don't have to be incredible at it but even just having the eye for it um, moves you miles uh, just okay. being like because you have this idea of okay well maybe they're going to find this thing and like they're going to try to hear first you know Um, and then people who are honestly just passionate about security mm-hmm. um, it seems a little uh little like a non-answer, um, but there's a lot of wonderful IT people out there who just don't really care about security and as a result create these wonderful systems that are horribly insecure. Um, <laughs> okay. So people who are actively interested is probably the next next best thing after okay. some hacking skills.
0: John, did you want to add anything to that?
2: Um, what I was going to say is those those people that are passionate about just making things. Though that, that's that's what yeah. we are. We're engineers.
0: So uh, yeah, I've had I've had IT people call me a cowboy at times. So you got to...
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, you go. in all fairness, I'm the same way. I I also do web development and, I'm and an artist. And, so and, I, and I just that's, love that's to a, make. You know, yeah. You know, classic example of,
0: of of the end keeping the end in mind and. And trying to to get to the solution, but but yeah, there's obviously a lot of important things that have to be done. Right. Um Again, I want to I want to thank you, Steve, for joining us. Steve, I know you've been on the road, but I want to thank you for joining us as well. You were crystal clear, so thank you very much. Um, and John, thanks for for helping us put this together once again, and uh, and all your problems.
2: I'm glad we could. You know, I mean, there's a couple of rabbit holes that we we could probably have other. Topics on, and like I said, if anybody out there is listening, please write write to us or email us and uh, send us in your ideas. We'd really appreciate your uh, your feedback. Uh, here's a couple of different places that you can get a hold of us. And um, I mean, I, I I have a I have a closing thought that's uh that could probably feed another issue, which is can we use somewhere down the road can we use blockchain to help secure some of those transactions. Mm-hmm. Which
0: is a whole different topic. Okay, a, a topic for another topic time. For another time. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate it. And for those of you listening, uh, this is the Manufacturing Analytics Working Group of Mesa International. Uh, and this uh, link, these links right here, this is where you can find our podcast, Analytics Matter. Thank you very much, everyone.